Chapter One of Starborn. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. Starborn by Andre Norton, Chapter One: Shooting Star. What of our children? the second and third generations born on this new world, they will have no memories of Terra's green hills and blue seas. Will they be Terrans, or something else? By Tass Kordov, in Record of the First Years The travellers had sighted the cove from the sea, a narrow bite into the land, the first break in the cliff wall which protected the interior of this continent from the pounding of the ocean and, although it was still but mid-afternoon, Dalgard pointed the outrigger into the promised shelter, the dip of his steering-paddle swinging in harmony with that wielded by Tsuri in the bow of their narrow, wave-riding craft. The two voyages were neither of the same race nor of the same species, yet they worked together without words, as if they had established some bond which gave them a rapport transcending the need for speech. Dalgard Nordis was a son of the colony. His kind had not originated on this planet. He was not as tall nor as heavily built as those Terran outlaw ancestors who had fled political enemies across the galaxy to establish a foothold on Astra, and there were other subtle differences between his generation and the parent stock. Thin and wiry, his skin was brown from the gentle toasting of the summer sun making the fairness of his closely cropped hair even more noticeable. At his side was his longbow, carefully wrapped in water-resistant flying dragon skin, and from the belt which supported his short breeches of tan duocorn hide swung a two-foot blade, half wood-knife, half sword. To the eyes of his Terran forefathers he would have presented a barbaric picture. In his own mind he was amply clad and armed for the man-journey which was both his duty and his heritage to make before he took his place as a full adult in the Council of Free Men. In contrast to Dalgard's smooth skin, Tsuri was covered with a fluffy pelt of rainbow-tipped grey fur. In place of the human steel blade he wore one of bone, barbed and ugly as menacing as the spear now resting in the bottom of the outrigger. And his round eyes watched the sea with the familiarity of one whose natural home was beneath those same waters. The mouth of the cove was narrow, but after they negotiated it they found themselves in a pocket of bay, sheltered and calm, into which trickled a lazy stream. The grey-blue of the seashore sand was only a fringe beyond which was turf and green stuff. Tsuri's nostril flaps expanded as he tested the warm breeze, and Dalgard was busy cataloguing scents as they dragged their craft ashore. They could not have found a more perfect place for a campsite. Once the canoe was safely beached, Tsuri picked up his spear, and without a word or backward glance, waded out into the sea, disappearing into the depths, while his companion set about his share of camp tasks. It was still early in the summer, too early to expect to find ripe fruit, but Dalgard rummaged in his voyager's bag and brought out a half-dozen crystal beads. 
he laid these out on a flat-topped stone by the stream, seating himself cross-legged beside it. To the onlooker it would appear that the traveller was meditating. A wide-winged, living splotch of colour fanned by overhead, there was a distant yap of sound. Dalgard neither looked nor listened. But perhaps a minute later what he awaited arrived. A hopper, its red-brown fur sleek and gleaming in the sun, its eternal curiosity drawing it, peered cautiously from the bushes. Dalgard made mind-touch. The hoppers did not really think, at least not on the levels where communication was possible for the colonists, but sensations of friendship and goodwill could be broadcast, primitive ideas exchanged. The small animal, its human-like front paw-hands dangling over its creamy vest, came out fully into the open, black eyes flicking from the motionless Delgard to the bright beads on the rock. But when one of those paws shot out to snatch the treasure, the traveller's hand was already cupped protectingly over the hoard. Dalgard formed a mental picture and beamed it at the twenty-inch creature before him. The hopper's ears twitched nervously, its blunt nose wrinkled, and then it bounded back into the brush, a weaving line of moving grass marking its retreat. Dalgard withdrew his hand from the beads. Through the years the Astran colonists had come to recognize the virtues of patience. Perhaps the mutation had begun before they left their native world. Or perhaps the change in temperament and nature had occurred in the minds and bodies of that determined handful of refugees, as they rested in the frozen cold sleep, while their ship bore them to the wide uncharted reaches of deep space for centuries of Terran time. How long that sleep had lasted, the survivors had never known. But those who had awakened on Astra were different. And their sons and daughters, and the sons and daughters of two more generations, were warmed by a new sun, nourished by food grown in alien soil, taught the mind-contact by the amphibian mermen with whom the space voyagers had made an early friendship each succeeding child more attuned to the new home, less tied to the far-off world he had never seen or would see. The colonists were not the same breed as their fathers, their grandfathers, or great-grandfathers. So, with other gifts, they had also a vast, time-consuming patience, which could be a weapon or a tool as they pleased, not forgetting the instantaneous call to action which was their older heritage the hopper returned. On the rock beside the shining things it coveted, it dropped dried and shriveled fruit. Dalgard's fingers separated two of the gleaming marbles, rolled them toward the animal, who scooped them up with a chirp of delight. But it did not leave. Instead it peered intently at the rest of the beads. Hoppers had their own form of intelligence, though it might not compare with that of humans. And this one was enterprising. In the end it delivered three more loads of fruit from its burrow, and took away all the beads, both parties well pleased with their bargains. Tsuri splashed out of the sea with as little ado as he had entered. On the end of his spear twisted a fish. His fur, slicked flat to a strongly muscled body, began to dry in the air and fluff out, while the sun awoke prismatic lights on the scales which covered his hands and feet. 
He dispatched the fish and cleaned it neatly, tossing the offal back into the water, where some shadowy things arose to tear at the unusual bounty. This is not hunting ground. His message formed in Dalgard's mind. That finned one had no fear of me. We were right then in heading north. This is new land. Dalgard got to his feet. On either side, the cliffs, with their alternate bands of red, blue, yellow, and white strata, walled in this pocket. They would make far better time keeping to the sea lanes, where it was not necessary to climb. And it was Dalgard's cherished plan to add more than just an inch or two to the explorer's map in the council hall. Each of the colony males was expected to make his man-journey of discovery, sometimes between his eighteenth and twentieth year. He went alone, or, if he formed an attachment with one of the mermen near his own age, accompanied only by his knife-brother. And from knowledge so gained, the still small group of exiles added to and expanded their information about their new home. Caution was drilled into them for they were not the first masters of Astra, nor were they the masters now. There were the ruins left by those others, the race who had populated this planet until their own wars had completed their downfall. And the mermen, with their traditions of slavery and dark beginnings in the experimental pens of the older race, continued to insist that across the sea, on the unknown western continent, those others still held on to the remnants of a degenerate civilization. Thus the explorers from Homeport went out by ones and twos, and used the fauna of the land as a means of gathering information. Hoppers could remember yesterday only dimly, and instinct took care of tomorrow. But what happened today sped from hopper to hopper, and could warn by mind-touch both merman and human. If one of the dread snake-devils of the interior was on the hunting trail, the hoppers sped the warning. Their vast curiosity brought them to the fringe of any disturbance, and they passed the reason for it along. Dalgard knew there were a thousand eyes at his service whenever he wanted them. There was little chance of being taken by surprise, no matter how dangerous this journey north might be. The city— he formed the words in his mind, even as he spoke them aloud. How far are we from it? The merman hunched his slim shoulders in the shrug of his race. Three days' travel, maybe five, and it, though his furred face displayed no readable emotion, the sensation of distaste was plain, was one of the accursed ones. To such we have not returned since the days of falling fire. Dalgard was well acquainted with the ruins which lay not many miles from home port, and he knew that that sprawling, devastated metropolis was not taboo to the merman. But this other mysterious settlement he had recently heard of was still shunned by the sea people. Only Tsuri and a few others of youthful years would consider a journey to explore the long-forbidden section their traditions labeled as Dangerous Land. The belief that he was about to venture into questionable territory had made Dalgard evasive when he reported his plans to the elders three days earlier. But since such trips were, by tradition, always thrust into the unknown, they had not questioned him too much. All in all, Dalgard thought, watching Tsitsuri lake the firm pink flesh from the fish, 
he might deem himself lucky in this quest ordained. He went off to hack out armloads of grass and fashion the sleep mats for the sun-warmed ground. They had eaten and were lounging in content on the soft sand just beyond the curl of the waves, when Tsuri lifted his head from his folded arms, as if he listened. Like all those of his species, his vestigial ears were hidden deep in his fur, and no longer served any real purpose. The mind-touch served him in their stead. Dalgard caught his thought, though what had aroused his companion was too rare a thread to trouble his less acute senses. Runners in the dark. Dalgard frowned. It is still sun-time. What disturbs them? To the eye Tsuri was still listening to that which his friend could not hear. They come from afar. They are on the move to find new hunting grounds. Dalgard sat up. To each and every scout from home port the unusual was a warning, a signal to alert mind and body. The runners in the night, that furred monkey race of hunters who comb the moonless dark of Astra when most of the higher fauna were asleep, were very distantly related to Tsuri's species, though the gap between them was that between highly civilized man and the jungle ape. The runners were harmless and shy, but they were noted also for clinging stubbornly to one particular district, generation after generation. To find such a clan on the move into new territory was to be fronted with a puzzle it might be well to investigate. A snake-devil, he suggested tentatively, forming a mind-picture of the vicious reptilian danger which the colonists tried to kill on sight, whenever and wherever encountered. His hand went to the knife at his belt. One met with weapons, only that hissing hatred motivated by a brainless ferocity which did not know fear. But Tsuri did not accept that explanation. He was sitting up, facing inland where the thread of valley met the cliff wall. And seeing his absorption, Dalgard asked no distracting questions. No. No snake-devil. After long moments came the answer. He got to his feet, shuffling through the sand in the curious little half-dance which betrayed his agitation more strongly than his thoughts had done. "'The hoppers have no news,' Dalgard said. Tsuri gestured impatiently with a one outflung hand. "'Do the hoppers wander far from their own nest-mounds? Somewhere there,' he pointed to the left and north. "'There is trouble, bad trouble.' Tonight we shall speak with the runners and discover what it may be. Dalgard glanced about the camp with regret, but he made no protest as he reached for his bow and stripped off its protective casing. With a quiver of heavy-duty arrows slung over his shoulder he was ready to go, following Tsuri inland. The easy valley path ended less than a quarter of a mile from the sea, and they were fronted by a wall of rock with no other option than to climb but the westering sun made plain every possible hand and foothold on its surface. When they stood at last on the heights and looked ahead, it was across a broken stretch of bare rock, with a green of vegetation beckoning from at least a mile beyond. Tsuri hesitated for only a moment or two, his round, almost featureless head turning slowly, until he fixed on a northeasterly course striking out unerringly as if he could already sight the goal. 
Dalgard fell in behind, looking over the country with a wary eye. This was just the type of land to harbor flying dragons. And while those pests were small, their lightning-swift attack from above made them foes not to be disregarded. But all the flying things they saw were two moth-birds of delicate hues engaging far over the sun-baked rock in one of their graceful winged dances. They crossed the heights and came to the inland slope, a drop towards the central interior plains of the continent. As they ploughed through the high grasses, Dalgard knew they were under observation. Hoppers watched them. And once through a break in a line of trees he saw a small herd of duocorns race into the shelter of a wood. The presence of those two-horned creatures, so like the pictures he had seen of Terran horses, was insurance that the snake-devils did not hunt in this district, for the swift-footed duocorns were never found within a day's journey of their arch-enemies. Late afternoon faded into the long summer twilight, and still Tsutsuri kept on. As yet they had come across no traces of those others. Here were none of the domed farm buildings, the monorail tracks, the other relics one could find about Homeport. This wide open land could have been always a wilderness, left to the animals of Astra for their own. Dalgard speculated upon that, his busy imagination supplying various reasons for such tract. Then the voiceless communication of his companion provided an explanation. This was barrier land. What? Tsutsuri turned his head. His round eyes, which blinked so seldom, stared into Dalgard's as if by the intensity of that gaze he could drive home deeper his point. What lies to the north was protected in the days before the falling fire. Even those, the distorted merman symbol for those others, was sharpened by the very hatred of all Tsutsuri's kind, which had not paled during the generations since their escape from slavery to Astra's one-time masters could not venture into some of their own private places without special leave. It is perhaps true that the city we are seeking is one of those restricted ones, and that this wilderness is a boundary for it. Dalgard's pace slowed. To venture into a section of land which had been used as a barrier to protect some secret of those others was a highly risky affair. The first expedition sent out from Homeport after the landing of the Terran refugee ship had been shot down by robot-controlled guns still set against some long-dead invader. Would this territory be so guarded? If so, they had better go carefully now. Tsutsuri suddenly struck off at an angle, heading not northeast now, but directly north. The brushlands along the foot of the cliffs gave way to open fields bare except for the grass rippled by the wind. It was not the type of country to attract the night-runners, and Dalgard wondered a little. They should discover water, preferably a shallow stream if they wanted to find what the monkey creatures liked best. Within a quarter hour he knew that Tsutsuri was not going wrong. Cradled in a sudden dip in the land was the stream Dalgard had been looking for. A hopper lifted a dripping muzzle from the shore ripples and stared at them. Dalgard contacted the animal. It was its usual curious self. Nothing had alarmed or excited its interest, and he did not try to establish more than a casual contact as they made their way down the bank to the edge of the stream, 
Tsutsuri splashing an ankle deep for the sheer pleasure of feeling liquid curl about his feet and legs once more. Water-dwellers fled from their passing, and insects buzzed and hovered. Otherwise they moved through a deserted world. The stream-bed widened, and small islands of gravel, swept together in untidy piles by the spring floods, arose dry-topped, some already showing the green of venturesome plants. Here Tsutsuri stopped, thrusting the butt of his spear into the shore of one such islet. He dropped cross-legged on his choice, there to remain patiently until those he sought would come with the dark. Dalgard withdrew a little way downstream, and took up a similar post. The runners were shy, not easy to approach, and they would come more readily if Tsutsuri were alone. Here the murmur of the stream was loud, rising above the rustle of the wind-driven grass, and the night was coming fast as the sun, hidden by the cliff wall, sank into the sea. Dalgard, knowing that his night sight was far inferior to that of the native Astran fauna, resignedly settled himself for an all-night stay, not without a second regretful memory of the snug camp by the shore. Twilight, and then night. How long before the runners would make their appearance? He could pick up the sparks of thought which marked the coming and going of hoppers, most hurrying off to their mud-plastered nests, and sometimes a flicker from the mind of some other night-creature. Once he was sure he touched the avid, raging hunger which marked a flying dragon, though they were not naturally hunters by darkness. Dalgard made no move to contact Tsuri. The merman must be left undisturbed in his mental quest for the runners. The scout lay back on his miniature island and stared up into the sky, trying to sort out all the myriad impressions of life about him. It was then that he saw it. An arrow of fire streaking across the black bowl of Astra's night sky, a light so vivid, so alien, that it brought him to his feet with a chill prickle of apprehension along his spine. In all his years as a scout and woodsman, in all the stories of his fellows and his elders at Homeport, he had never seen never heard of the like of that. And through his own wonder and alert alarm, he caught Tsuri's added puzzlement. Danger! The merman's verdict fed his own unease. Danger had crossed the night, from east to west, and to the west lay what they had always feared. What was going to happen now? End of chapter.